this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. risk of slightly bothering our wonderful dynamic duo, I just need to borrow this. Is that okay? <laughs> In fact, before anything, we need to, uh, Naomi's very kindly going to read the passage. You're going to hear plenty from me, which I hope will bless you, but uh, we're going to hear from Naomi first, who's going to read the scripture that we're going to be looking at today. Good morning. I am reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, so if you'd like to turn to that or scroll to that. And it's also behind me as being pointed out. Thank you, James. Lots of punctuation here, so this is going to test my teacher skills. Paul defends his ministry. This is from the ESV version. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we, that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with those who are commending themselves, But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will only boast with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labours of others, But our hope is that your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in other areas of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Great stuff. Thank you, Naomi. 
Father, we love your word. We love the freedom that you bring to us through it. We just ask that you would unfold it in our hearts this morning, that you would uh, bless me and that you would bless us all just to uh, step ever more into the goodness and the grace that you have for us. Amen. Okay. Picture this with me. You're walking along a sandy beach. You can feel the heat of the day seeping through the sand as it overlaps between your toes. Gulls are crying overhead, calling out to each other above the gentle crash of the waves as they break and rush up the shore. You feel content, at peace, as you lift your eyes to the sunshine. As you open your eyes, you notice a squat, dark shape before you. It's an ominous, artificial presence. It's out of kilter with the harmony of the environment that surrounds you. As you approach it, you begin to notice the durability of its construction. Concrete walls and ceilings several feet thick, narrow viewpoints, giving clear line of sight to anyone who would approach. You pause. You think to yourself, well, the war's long over. You know there can't be an armed soldier inside, logically thinking. Yet the presence of this formidable structure just gives you pause for hesitation. Now, if you walk along uh, the beaches along northern France, at some point, you're going to come across bunkers like these. They were built to deny the Allied forces that were anticipated in arriving uh, from liberating France, which was, a, you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware, a country that was under hostile and foreign occupation. These structures, these bunkers, were just, they just seemed immovable. They couldn't just be got rid of with mortar fire. They had to be cleared one by one. Small groups of soldiers going to one by one, trying to flush out an enemy that they knew had no avenue of retreat and would likely hold on to the bitter end. So as you return to that beach in your thoughts, as you return to the present, this structure, it just seems out of place. It seems like a relic from a bygone era of conflict. It's far removed from your day-to-day -day experience. It just seems like a blot on the landscape that you'd rather just forget about. The issue is that these bunkers, these fortifications, these strongholds, they can't be forgotten about. Though they're a relic, to outward appearances, they seem immovable, and they've become part of the fabric of the coastline. In this passage, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So, what does Paul mean by that? Have you been bunker-busting lately? Just walked along some beaches and just, boom, concrete confetti, just filling the air. Have you? I haven't, not in, not in a literal sense. As is often the case, we've got to read on for the context that's going to bring the meaning to the metaphor. Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So this is what Paul means by stronghold. It's wrong thinking. It's wrong arguments and pretensions. Now, wrong arguments and claims have been around for donkey's years, haven't they? The earth is flat. 
the earth is the center of our universe. So we can see that people have had really sort of fundamental beliefs about the world and our daily existence that were just plain wrong. But in this passage, Paul's talking about wrong thinking about God, wrong thoughts about who he is and the nature of his kingdom. David Devonish has written a really good book on this. It's called Demolishing Strongholds. I really commend it to you. And in it, he writes this. Strongholds consist of thoughts that have not been taken captive to Christ, that have not been submitted to his lordship. The fact that Paul uses these military references and terms in strongholds and weapons also suggests that there is something really powerful about this whole system of wrong thinking that he's seeking to demolish. So, to deepen our understanding a little bit more of what these strongholds look like, we can look at a few other translations. I don't know about you, I find that quite helpful just sometimes when you're reading a passage. Think, oh, I'm just going to see what another translation says about it. So, the New Living talks about strongholds of human reasoning. Or the message, actually, has, uh, the message paraphrase has warped philosophies. Now, philosophies are just philo, which is love, of sophos, wisdom. Okay? So a warped philosophy is a warped love of wisdom. The wisdom's been twisted and it's been distorted. So the thing we have to consider is what, or more precisely who, twists wisdom, especially godly wisdom. The Living Bible just calls it, calls a spade a spade, and calls them the devil's strongholds. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, whoa, hang on, just back up a minute. The first translation you read is called them human reasoning. And now you're saying it's linked to the devil. What's going on there? The first clue is the fact that these strongholds are wrong. Okay? We're talking about in the life, in the mind of a believer, something is wrong. Okay? And so that's the first clue that there's, uh, the, the enemy might have had some influence. The second, and I picked up another little snippet from David Devonish, who says the reference to setting itself up, which we see, the reference to setting itself up suggests the work of the devil who originally rose up against God and sought to challenge God's rule and sovereignty. So these strongholds protect enemy-influenced thinking, which eventually can lead to action, which challenge God's rule and sovereignty. So if you're a believer in the room here today, surely you can see the necessity for removing them, for them to be destroyed and demolished. They're powerful and they're in opposition to God's will and word. So that's all very well. Okay, but what's going on in the rest of the passage? You know, Naomi read it really clearly for us, and there was clearly quite a bit going on. It's actually helpful for us just to pick out a few, uh, a few parts of it, just to understand why Paul is bringing this. The historical context that Paul's writing to Corinth about was that he was facing some criticism, some very vocal criticism from uh, supposed super-apostles. Now, you and I may think of Paul as like a super apostle anyway. He's sort of like some sort of, you know, holy warrior who just goes in and plants a church and then he goes and steals with that situation. He's shipwrecked and dumped it. And he had massive adventures with faith. But these, these, uh, these critics of his essentially were kind of making out that they were even more sort of super, more sort of holy than them. And we'll see where uh, Paul sort of starts to pick apart as we've read uh, their sort of self-promotion. So the criticism he was facing, they said things like, as we've read, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak 
and his speech of no account. Now, if you think of that, that might seem quite tame by today's standard of slander or deprecation. Like, oh, they're just criticizing his words, and, you know, and he's, he's quite a weak speaker. Like, that's, that's not very kind, uh, unkind, is it? It's not too bad. You should just brush that off. But actually, that, that was extremely dishonoring. That was extremely dishonoring to Paul, to all that he'd sought to do in planting and establishing the Corinthian churches, and we'll see why. First off, it's worth saying, these critics were probably not actually members of the church in Corinth. They were probably traveling Jewish Christian preachers. Okay? They were encroaching onto his territory, and they're essentially accusing him of being a coward, that he was kind of hiding behind the pen. And in that way, in their sort of self-important opinion, that's part of what they mean by accusing him of living by the standards of the world or by living according to the flesh. And that's, that's really at the heart of what Paul just utterly refutes. He just turns it around and says, like, no, I'm not, I'm not having that. Because it would have been a massive insult at the time. Firstly, the Corinthians, as we've seen through our series on 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they thought of themselves as like, we are super spiritual, we're super holy, we're, you know, we're all focused in the divine and you know, none of the earth. As we saw, that wasn't the case. They were somewhat self-deluded. But for, their, for Paul to be so criticised would have been sort of quite would have been a considerable insult to them. And even more so that he'd urged them actually to leave that purely human way of thinking behind. He'd wrote he'd written to the Galatians, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, you know, worshipping something other than God, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, he could, the list could go on. He could go on, but that's just what he had at the top of his head at the time. It's quite a comprehensive list, isn't it? So this is a massive accusation. They're essentially saying, you know, Paul is like that, that that is how he conducts himself. It might be a bit surprising, but if we read that closely, he does actually accept a very small part of their criticism. He says, we do live in the flesh. What he means by that is, you know, we do live in the world. He's not somehow divorced or separated from daily reality. You know, he, he lives in the everyday world with all its frustrations, limitations, trials, challenges, joys as well, of course. He's got to sleep, he's got to eat, he's got to wash and all of that. But what he is categorical in saying is that while he lives in the flesh, in the world, he doesn't act according to the flesh. That is the way the world goes about things. So he doesn't get uncontrollably angry. He doesn't get jealous. He doesn't allow himself to be involved in sexually immoral acts. And he certainly doesn't worship someone or something other than Jesus. Nor does he wage war, according to the flesh. You know, we saw how he opened this letter by saying, by pleading with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's not often the way how we would maybe choose. If we've been accused of something, we're like, well, just hang on a minute. No, Paul says, no, 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 I, I plead with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But the strength of Paul's reaction makes it clear that he's not going to tolerate such divisive undermining of his efforts to plant and establish the church in Corinth. He gives them a really clear warning. It's like a, it's like a shot across the bowels. 
to use a naval metaphor, that he's going to punish every disobedience in, his, uh, in person on his next visit if, basically, if, if they don't get their acts together, if they don't show like, responsible and appropriate behaviour. He will discipline those who are claiming falsely. Does that sound familiar? False claims, false arguments. Makes me wonder whether some of these super apostles are actually affected by a stronghold themselves, that they've got some sort of wrong thinking themselves. Anyhow, he says that he will sort that out. And that would also include any dissenters in the church who've been swayed by his criticism. Okay. But you see, at the end of the day, it's not just for Paul's sake himself. It's not just because he feels that they are undermining his authority and all his labours. It's because they are effectively and literally subverting the gospel of Jesus. Paul represents Jesus. He, he's called himself, he calls himself the ambassador for Christ. And his concern is that these, the members of the church in Corinth, as we read in chapter 11, is his concern is that their thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We've had such wonderful time this morning, celebrating Jesus, our eyes fixed on him, raising from our everyday to, to enjoy him. And, and Paul's concern is that because of these, uh, these critics who are all about self-advancement, his concern is that they're trying to advance themselves by criticizing him, and that as they do that, they are taking the eyes of the church off Jesus and onto them. You know, he saw this, as the abusive practice that it was, you know, that there's um, doing it at sort of at the expense of their competitors. And Paul just says it's just, it's just ridiculous. He says they're without understanding for doing this. He says that he's, he, he isn't going to lower himself to their level. And rather, while they're trying to shift their attention to themselves via having a go at Paul, his response is just to draw people back to the faith. He says, we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Our hope is that your faith increases so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. He doesn't want to get drawn into this. Well, I'm holier than you're holier. No, 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 I'm holier than you. He's like, no, they're without understanding. It's a load of rubbish. So, strongholds are wrong thinking that would oppose the gospel. Paul is trying to reinforce and spread the gospel. And Paul's opponents, meanwhile, are trying to big themselves up. It's basically little surprise that later he's going to go on and call these opponents from super apostles. He actually describes them as agents of Satan. Because it seems, it seems at least, that they're so dominated by strongholds. Okay. So, we've looked at what strongholds are. But how about some examples? What does that practically look like in the life of of a believer. So first of all, from another culture, superstition can be a stronghold. You know, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. By its very nature, it's quite legalistic. And they can act like a curse if superstition is not maintained. So David Devonish talks about a story in which he was praying for a lady in Africa about a stronghold that was related to fear. Nothing was happening. Okay, there was just I'm praying, I'm praying my best, excuse me, my best prayers, and it just doesn't seem that any effects being had. 
But the person praying with him knew something about the local culture and belief system and, and asked if she was wearing a piece of red string tied around her waist. They was, she was. They asked her to get rid of it, so she broke it and threw it on the ground. And as she did that, they saw a spirit of fear clearly leave her. This string was a symbol of superstition that had held her in its grip. Here's another one. David mentioned while he was in India, a Christian couple approached him to ask for prayer as they couldn't have children. He asked what the problem was, expecting some sort of medical answer like that. The lady basically said that when she was a teenager, she'd killed a cobra, and as a result, she could not have children. Okay? Perhaps you're not as shocked as, as I was by reading that. I don't mean that in a mockery way, but it just would not enter my head that if I had killed a deadly snake, that that, you know, that would mean that I wouldn't be able to, you know, to, to have a family. Because the thing is about this, the lady was a Christian. She had been for quite a while. But this remaining stronghold of superstition in her thinking hadn't been torn down, which had resulted in a demonically powerful block on her being able to have children. Even though, and this is the thing, there was nothing physically wrong with her. So, David prayed for her to be released from the stronghold of superstition in her life and the powers associated with it. When he went back two years later, praise God, she already had a baby and there was another one on the way. Together with her husband, they're leading a life group in the church. That's fantastic, isn't it? Praise God. Freedom coming. As wrong thinking. And that was thinking. Nothing but just thinking was preventing a blessing coming to her. But she was a Christian. You know, she had chosen, she'd said yes to Jesus. She'd, she'd unlocked the gate. She'd opened the door. She'd torn down the outer walls that we build up. to Like, no, keep people at a distance. Keep God at a distance. No, she said, no, come, Jesus. Come into my life. Set me free. She'd done that. But an, just an outpost of unbiblical thinking and belief had remained standing. But once it was demolished, her thought processes were changed and her physical body was affected so that she could bear children. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But you may still be sat there, like me, as you were reading that, thinking this just seems a little bit odd to my Western, logical, dare I say it, slightly scientific viewpoint. It might even seem ridiculous. It must be like red string, killing a cobra. But we've got to be careful. Because our culture means that we often view works of God with a cultural lens, a cultural viewpoint. And part of that, part of the conditioning that we may know even in Britain, is a, a, a bit of a reluctance to accept the supernatural. Maybe even scepticism, maybe even develops as far as cynicism. And so we have to make sure that that doesn't unduly affect or unduly colour our perception of her experience. Okay. And you may be sat there thinking, okay, all right, Rupert, yeah. You've done some reading. You've read some stories out of a book. But I can't really connect with that. They seem like unfamiliar scenarios. But the fact is, it can actually be easier to spot those strongholds in other situations because we can have blind spots in our own. The way we've been raised, our culture can actually blind us to some situations in our own settings. So that stops us from seeing how that's at odds with the gospel. So, I'm just going to share a little story from my own life at the moment. 
in order to protect uh, some of the other people involved, I don't, I don't mind you knowing, that's why I'm sharing publicly, I trust and hope that will be helpful, but in order to protect some others, I'm going to ask if we can pause the recording, keep the mic. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favour from the Lord. Now other translations call this good thing a treasure and she is a blessing to him. Jesus equipped the church leaders with the means to release me from my wrong thinking and I'll look at what and who I have received as a gift. For those who don't know Isabel, Isabel's my wife. She is a treasure and she is a blessing to me. She wasn't the girl in the earlier story. I wanted to protect them by this not being recorded. They've moved on. Uh, she's married and has a family of her own. But I wanted to tell you because I felt like it's important to understand how strongholds can really hold us back from all the goodness that God has for us. So, a final, a final stronghold that I'm just going to mention. Uh, there are more than one, but one that may well have significance for, um, for us here today is mammon. Now, the NIV often translates this as money, um, but Jesus actually refers to it as a false god named mammon, whose attributes are covetousness and greed. A false god and, a, and an idol will give a false sense of security. And in this case, with mammon, it's rooted in, in what we earn. And if this sets in, our purpose becomes to earn more, our identity is seen in terms of our salary, and we can be driven by sort of an, uh, an, un, an inappropriate, an unhealthy quest for promotion and advancement. And this love of money, which that's what it is, worship, wor you know, when we worship, we're showing our love for God, for Jesus. And that worship of mammon, or this love of, of money, brings with it a temptation to cheat, to lie, to manipulate, and to fail to give enough time to our families. It's a really subtle deception, uh, because as men or women, you know, we can often believe, well, as men, I can't speak for as a woman, uh, <laughs> we can believe it's done on the grounds of providing for our families. But we've got to remind ourselves of the truth, that God has and always will provide for his flock. And yet, sometimes, are we blind that this anxiety that can sometimes come to us, maybe that uh, the worry of not having enough actually stems from, it might stem from a you know, pursuit of mammon, a love of mammon. It might even hinder us from giving generously. You know, as John exhorted us so well from chapter 9 last year, um, last week, sorry, it might even hold us back from that. And uh, just before we look at the weapons we have to deal with this. As we were praying in the room, I just felt on this, maybe linked to this, I just felt that there might be somebody who's got an issue with a bank today. Um, I believe that the bank was Santander. Uh, I also had the word default and 12. So, look, I don't know if one of those four words, bank, Santander, default or 12, one, two, all four of them speak to you but if they do, I feel God would really encourage you just to come and have a word with me. And I feel like as you let God into that situation, he's going to really help you with that. So, yeah, there's, there is no shame. I, I hope you'd feel there is no shame. I've been really vulnerable with you today because I want to encourage you to know that when God speaks about a situation like that, it's because he wants to do you good and bless you, not to condemn you, but to bring you freedom. So Bank Santander Default 12, leave it with you. So, the weapons of divine power that we have, and how do we use them to demolish strongholds? It's spiritual warfare, that's what we're talking about, and so we need spiritual weaponry. 
what distinguishes the weapons that Paul are talking about is power. And the Greek word for that is dynatos, which is actually where we get dynamite from. So the weapons Paul fights with and the weapons that we have available to us as believers have divine power. And as a result, they can do what the world's weapon cannot and demolish these strongholds. In the passage, Paul doesn't actually say what the weapons are, but I've taken a few points from Demolishing Strongholds. You know, it's, it is a great book, how we can perceive and engage in spiritual warfare under the banner of victory of the resurrected Jesus. So, first up, and I will, I will sort of rattle these off quite quickly. If you want to know some more, by all means, talk to me afterwards or get hold of the book for yourself. Firstly, the Word of God. The Word of God is given to expose strongholds and bring them to light. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as we read in Hebrews. How many of us have thought this? I just feel so low and unloved right now. It's like, no one ever really does anything good for me. Bang. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's what Jesus did when he was being tempted by the devil. Each time, he used the word of God just to bat those uh, temptations aside. If Jesus can do it, so can we. Perseverance in itself. You know, as we submit ourselves to God, as we resist the devil, and he will flee from us, we read in James. You know, I've mentioned this before, but we have come to expect everything instantly, whether it's TV, whether it's shopping, whether it's food. We just want it like, oh, I ordered it. Has it not arrived yet? Where is it? But actually, you know, God, for God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He's not ruled, he's not restricted by the tyranny of time and urgency, and neither are we. Faith by its nature requires perseverance and endurance, which are qualities that God honors. Faith is one itself. Faith looks realistically at the circumstances, but makes the choice to believe God's word over the present situation rather than being ruled by that. Active faith is in contrast to passivity. We were talking about the beach before. You know when you stand in the sea and the waves rush in and they rush out and it feels like they they tug at you and they almost, you know, depending on the strength of the current, they can sort of jolt you and, and knock you off balance. That's a little bit, in part, what faith is like. Sometimes we just have to stand in God's promises even as the world and our surroundings are tugging us in different directions. Prayer. By this time, I mean prayer. I mean actually lifting our guys. Not worrying or thinking, of which I've done plenty and perhaps we all have done that as well. But I mean actually praying to God. Not praying against the negative, but for the positive. God, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer in the Spirit. At all times, with all supplication, with thanksgiving, making our requests known to God. Might include praying in tongues. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Worship, giving thanks and praise. It might be sung. There's an Old Testament uh, uh, figure known as Jehoshaphat. He was in a particular battle. And before that, before the battle, he actually sent out his musicians and singers. And they sang the psalm, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As we focus and worship on God, our faith and vision of him increases. That increases our confidence in his ability to act. 
worship preceded the battle, it can precede our battles now. You know, we sung this morning, see his love nailed onto a cross, sing songs full of truth, let them soak into your, into your spirit. We, the whole armour of God. I had the passage from Ephesians 6. You may be relieved to know that I won't be reading it all out. But we need to put on the whole armour of God and stand in the strength of his might. You know, a characteristic of our lives needs to be that we're living continuously in the good of the truth symbolised by these weapons. The sword of the spirit. The shield of faith. The uh, sandals of uh, peace. The helmet of salvation. Finally, you know, the joy of the Lord. That's so important in winning and overcoming these battles. A lot of the time we're most in tune, most aware of being joyful as we celebrate Jesus, who he is, how he demonstrates God's grace and love for us, for the church and the world. So, there's just one final comment I want to make before we draw into a close. Slightly, uh, slightly over time, for which I apologise, but I just want to make a final comment about taking captive every thought. So I was at a meal at a stag do recently, and one of the guys, he's a really interesting chap, he's not a Christian, but he, he actually brought up this topic, he kind of brought up this idea, it's the kind of thing which you might sort of get your heads around in like a life group, but he brought it up there and there in a, a fine barbecue meat establishment. <sighs> Don't get me started on how good that food was. Um, but he said... He was basically saying that this, it was this idea of can we be responsible or not for our actions and our thoughts. He was saying, you know, you can't help your thoughts. You can't. They just pop into your head and they're there. And our very own Tim, who we saw, who's been uh, part of the team looking after the youth in New Day, was doing a really good job of trying to respect what the other guy was saying, but also not just agreeing to absolutely everything. Um, and he tried to get across this point. You know, yeah, I might have thoughts that I'm not proud of as a married man, as a father to, uh, to young girls, but I don't have to dwell on them. I don't have to be governed by them, nor do they have to dictate what I do as a result. And I was talking about this uh, as I was getting ready for this with John, and, and John Batten recommended a really practical approach that he'd read about. It's called the three R's. Okay, so the first, is to, the first R is to recognize. Recognize where the thought had come from. Some, they're just thoughts, and some are enemy activity. The second R is refuse to accept them. Stand with the full armor of God, as we read in Ephesians 6. And the final R is replace them with the word of God. Find scriptures that combat the fiery dart. So recognize what they are, refuse and replace. It's actually really helpful, because this helps us do what we read in Romans 12, uh, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So if you do the three R's, that will help you renew your mind. But I've got to be honest here, like, that doesn't happen just on its own. You know, I talked about coming to Christ, and for many of us that's our experience, that some things just happen straight away, but this renewal doesn't happen completely on its own. It's your mind, it's my mind, and you and I are responsible for the majority of what we put in front of it, what we think about, what we spend time on, what we listen to, and I just want to encourage us today just to take some initiative back a bit of healthy self-control. It's a little bit like being sat on a horse and just letting the reins go slack. And said horse, I've been told, because I've only sat on one once, will just eventually just wander over and just graze. I'm not actually going to get, you know, impersonate a horse. But will actually graze and feed on whatever it wants. So if it likes to, it might end up eating too much grass 
or too many sugar cubes. And then, you know, you're going to have to face the consequences later. I'm told it does something to their digestive tract and processes. You can, you can fill in the dots. But you don't have to just let go of the reins and just let your mind just wander. You can actually take the reins of your mind horse. Now, <laughs> there is a really unusual image for you. So it's not a perfect metaphor, but you can take the reins and you can choose what it grazes and feeds on. For the majority of the time, you can nourish your mind with truth or allow it to roam randomly and take up whatever it wants. So, to finish, strongholds are wrong. There are wrong ways of thinking. They may have been created by our upbringing, by our culture, by things we've been involved in, or even things said to us. Now, they could be damaging words said to us that have led us to believe something that's not true about ourselves. On one level, it doesn't actually matter how it was constructed. It opposes God's goodness for you, for me, and it needs to be demolished. So I'm just going to ask, you know, as I've been speaking, has the Holy Spirit highlighted an area of your thought life which is resisting God's way of doing things? You might want to read a bit more. You might want to read Demolishing Strongholds. Or David Holden, who leads the New, uh, the new Ground Apostolic Sphere um, in another part of the country, he wrote a book called Battle for the Mind. You can get them. Cheapest chips off Amazon. Really good. But maybe you need a bit more than that. Maybe you need to invite in the Holy Spirit to help you take the reins, to take captive every thought for Christ. You need Holy Spirit's help in aligning and renewing your thoughts with God's truth. Or maybe it's affecting what you're doing. Maybe it's holding you back from something good, from stepping out in faith with God whether that's social, relational, financial, or a faith step? Or is it actually reinforcing destructive behaviours, overly negative and self-critical thoughts and emotions? I, I don't know the situation. Maybe you just need someone to stand alongside you. Whatever you're going through, you just need the support of a brother or sister in Christ who will speak words of life and truth, who will help you with that renewal of your mind. And the Holy Spirit will fill you afresh with faith and a godly perspective. Because we are in a battle. We are. We come back to that picture of the beach that we started with. The battle is raging. From our experience of it, it's not over. And we follow a resurrected king who has achieved the final victory, but we live now and we face that battle. But it's not Dunkirk. Perhaps you've been to the cinema and caught that latest film. Or maybe you're familiar with this incredible rescue operation at the start of World War II. But this isn't Dunkirk, folks. This isn't a damage limitation exercise. If anything, this is like D-Day. Jesus is advancing. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He leads, we follow. We're advancing, taking ground, and these strongholds he has given us the weapons to demolish them, to clear the landscape, and press forward in our lives and the lives of other believers. And if you want help with that, or any of the things I've mentioned today, then come and let us pray with you. He's such an amazing king. We have worshipped and we've celebrated. And his desire and his heart for you is freedom. For freedom, you've set us free. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery anymore because that's what it will do. 
although speaking into another situation, those verses in Galatians, anything that is opposing itself to God, however big or small, will hold you back from all of the goodness that he has for you. So if you want, as I've mentioned, someone to pray with you, we'd be delighted to do that. I think we also have a, a word, uh, someone else went, um, someone had during the worship time, so I'll leave it over to Adam and to Ray as to how we bring that. Okay, thanks. That was great, Ruby. Thank you very much indeed. Um, time's getting on by, and so we just want to keep folk here for the sake of keeping you here. Um, but I just had a word this morning, and it's for people uh, who have had um, a long-term back problem. So if you've had a long-term back problem and you're still suffering with that, then uh, I want to encourage you to come and get some prayer for that this morning. I'm going to be here around at the front. Pray for you this morning. So, if you've got a back condition, then would like to pray for you this morning. Amazing. Um, I, I don't want to cut across at all um, this uh, time, and I really want to encourage you. If uh, any of that responds uh, to you, then please do come forward for prayer. Um, we will close the meeting officially there. Parents, if you have got kids in Frog Club, uh, please do go and collect them. But um, Izzy and Caroline, you, you have. to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk and come along on any Sunday morning.